Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, uh, look with me at Matthew chapter 5. In verse 1, as we saw last week, now when he saw, that is when Yeshua the Messiah saw the crowds, and the crowds are defined for us in verses 23 to 25 in in chapter 4. And these crowds are ones that came to him as a result of his teaching, notice this in verse 23, in their synagogues. In fact, as you go through the book of Matthew and the other Gospels, you'll read over and over again how Messiah enters the synagogues and presents the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he sends out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he tells them, do not go among the Gentiles, do not go among the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeshua modeled that as he went to synagogues. Paul modeled that. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see every place he goes, the first place he goes, are where the Jewish people are gathered. That is the synagogue. And if there's no synagogue in the community and they're worshiping or praying in another place, like at Philippi, where they were by a riverbed, he would go down there in order to be sure that the message of the good news got out to the Jewish people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The good news is not exclusively to go out to the Jewish people. We find that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. We see this in the first chapter in the book of Acts when Messiah gives us his last marching orders and he says, you are to be my witnesses. And he tells us we are to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the message starts with Israel, it goes out to the world but still is incumbent upon the believers in every age to make sure the good news is going out to the Jewish people. To be sure that those congregations, those churches, those gatherings of individuals who love the Lord in community, wherever they are, they need to be cognizant of God's chosen people. They need to be doing what they can to see that they hear the good news, for that is what we are commanded to do. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul says to the Jew first, he doesn't mean that the gospel must go to them before it goes to someone else. It's not a secondary command. The word first means preeminently. The gospel is preeminently a gospel of and for the Jews. After all, it came by way of the Jewish people. As Paul tells us, unto them was committed the oracles of God in Romans chapter 3. 
We're told that the good news, the word of God, its entirety has been communicated to us through God's chosen people. We are very mindful of the fact that the Messiah of Israel came from the house of Israel, born into the family of David, from the tribe of Judah, born in the city of Bethlehem in the land of Israel. If he is not the Jewish Messiah, he's nobody's Messiah, is what Romans 1.16 is telling us. The gospel is the gospel of salvation to the Jew first. If it is not for the Jew, it cannot be for anyone. And if it is for the Jew, we have the responsibility to see that they hear it. Messiah models that for us. Chapter 4, verse 23, he's teaching throughout the land of Galilee, throughout the land of Israel. He's in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's demonstrating his presence by way of healing every disease, by healing every sickness among the people. And news begins to spread. And as news spread, spreads, more and more people want to hear him. They want to encounter him. They want to see him. They want to be moved by him. They want to experience him. They want to be touched by him emotionally, spiritually, physically, intellectually. They want to engage him. For he, after all, is the one who is demonstrating, I am the Savior about whom the law and the prophets have spoken. So in chapter 5, as he gathers his disciples... In verse 1, he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice what it says, he began to teach them, but the crowd saw this. And they wanted to hear, and so they're overhearing what Messiah has to say. When we look at these Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are to ask ourselves, what does our hearts consider vital for our character and our lives? What does our hearts consider as vital for our character and our lives? That's what Messiah is first addressing in these Beatitudes. He's telling us what ought to be vital in our hearts, what ought to be vital to us and desirable for us and necessitating our commitment to these qualities that our character may be changed and altered, and that we would be a people who demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is among us. Now, when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that was his early message. That was John's message. And here he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the era when the Messiah will reign. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the expression kingdom of God. It does not denote the rule of God in our hearts. It speaks of the rule of Messiah on the earth. But wherever the Messiah is, there is something of his presence in our midst. Wherever the Messiah reigns, there is something of his kingdom to be made manifest. And if we are children of God, if we are adherents of the Messiahship of Yeshua, then the kingdom of heaven is ours. And one day we will enter that kingdom with him when he returns in his glory. But presently, he does reign in our midst, or he ought to, and in our lives. And to the degree to which he does, the kingdom character is to be exhibited 
in and through us. The first characteristic he mentions in verse 3 is that we are to have the characteristic of being poor in spirit. Now, when he speaks of poverty, he is not speaking of what is not found in our pockets. He's not talking about money. He's not talking about material gain. He's talking about what's in our hearts. And the beginning stage for the entrance into the kingdom of our Messiah is recognizing our poverty poverty of spirit. In other words, we have a great debt. A person who is poor is in debt to others who are able to sustain them and provide for them. Messiah is telling us we need to take a hard look at our lives and realize and recognize that we are people in poverty before God. If we don't, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, Messiah is telling us. Because entrance into the kingdom of heaven necessitates that that poverty be addressed. And none of us has the wherewithal to address it. Our debt is a spiritual one before God. We have violated his standards, and we therefore are in debt to him. It is only when we recognize our debt that we then cry out to the one who can supply us our need, and thereby we are given an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We talked about this a bit two weeks ago. But I think it is something that we need to always remember, because as time goes on, as we walk with the Lord, there is no doubt that we lose this sense of, well, consider it a sense of humility, and we gain a sense of pride. It's exhibited in how we address people in our world, issues in our world, criticisms about our world. And we fail to remember that we are not of the world, but we're in the world. And we are simply ones who have found the grace of God to enable us to stand before him. Someone has said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're all beggars that have found bread. And we would do well not to forget that. It is God's grace that has enabled us to enter his kingdom. It starts by recognizing our need for him and for him alone. That means the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount are not statements by which we gain God's favor. This is not about earning our way into God's good graces. These things are about what one looks like who has found and experienced the grace of God. One who has experienced the grace of God will be ever mindful of his need for that grace moment by moment. Not only so many years ago when we invited the Lord into our lives, but even right now as we go forward in our lives as he leads us and as he guides us. We are all ones who are dead in trespasses and sins. And unless God, by his grace, has reached down for us, 
We are all in a hopeless state. As Messiah says, we are people who are in poverty and a people who are in debt. In verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, it's important to realize that when Messiah begins by saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. In the Greek, there are different words for blessed. There is the word, for example, eulogetas, from which we get the word eulogy from. And a eulogetas is a blessing of praise that we bestow upon another. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. For the Hebrew word ashrei, which means happy. The word here is makarios which is the word for blessed. It means by blessed, it means those who have received the favor of God. That's what it means to be blessed. Blessed are those who by the goodness of God have come to recognize their poverty of spirit. Blessed, he says, are those who by the grace of God, the good favor of God, have come to that place where once recognizing our need, We mourn because of it. We take inventory of who we are and we say to ourselves, this life does not look very good. And unless God does something with it, I'm in serious trouble. When Messiah first stood up, recorded in Luke chapter 4, but I'll ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 61. He tell where we read of his early message in the synagogue of Nazareth. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's blessedness. And that message was meant to convey that for those who recognize their poverty of spirit, their great need, for those that in light of that need mourn over it, that the Lord has come to bind up their wounds, to heal their broken hearts, to unite them to the living God. And thus he promises to comfort us. Isaiah 60 says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And Messiah came to bring that comfort to our mourning because of who we are. When I read a passage like that, I can't help but think of my own experience. I'm sure you all have similar ones. But that moment when I invited the Lord into my life, it came after I was 17 years old. I had never left more than... 10 miles from my home, from the time that I was a young person until I was like 17. When I was 16, 17, I started sowing my oats and started being a little wild, at least for a 10th grader. <laughs> you know, when I think back, I, mean, I came to faith when I was 11th grade in high school, so I, I didn't have a lot of craziness going on in my 20s or 30s. But that t- year that I was in 10th grade, 
It was a crazy year. I had moved from the town I grew up in and where all my friends were. And I felt somewhat abandoned, isolated, and now I had to make all new friends. And I was in a community that was rougher than the town I had grown up in. Town I grew up in, a lot of Jewish people. It's not a rough town. (laughs) It was challenging in other ways, you know. Had to get those A's. But it wasn't a rough town. But then I moved to this other town, which was predominantly an Italian town. It's a little different town. And so I got connected with some people who were wonderful friends, but we all began to explore things perhaps we shouldn't. And it wasn't like I went really crazy in the drug culture or anything, but it was crazy enough to scare me. And I remember in May, May 1st, it was, what they call May 1st? May Day? And it was sort of the, t- the time where they had uh, peace rallies all over. This is like 1971, so Vietnam was still going. And there was going to be some peace rallies in Washington, D.C. And my friends said, hey, let's hitchhike and go down to D.C. I had never been like further than 10 miles from my home. I'm thinking, D.C. So I said, well, I love music and yeah, let's go. My parents had no idea where I went. I was gone for like three days. And so we hitchhiked, we went down to D.C. And I can't remember all the things that happened, but I do remember I fell asleep. And I woke up at the feet of some National Guards and policemen (laughs) with the blow horn saying, if you don't get out of the mall, you'll all be arrested at 12 o'clock. By 12 o'clock, get off the mall. You know, that's where the Washington Monument is, the Smithsonian, the Lincoln Memorial. That's called the mall in D.C. When you see those shots of the Capitol and then that whole uh, area of grass and buildings, that's the mall. And so there's a whole bunch of us there. So I wake up and all my friends are gone. And I'm just there. I turn around and I say to this one officer, I say, so how much, what time is it? And he said... You got 10 minutes, you know. So I remember I just started running. And I ran to a, um, a driveway or a road where cars were backed up. And I saw there was a van that had a New Jersey license plate. So I knocked on the door and I said, are you guys going to Jersey? They say, yeah, we're going up to Patterson. I said, well, I live right over in New Memphis. Hey, we'll take you home. So I get in the van with these guys. I have no idea who they are. And... Crazy things are going on in the van, and I'm like scared to death. And they took me right to my home, right to my home. I said, gee, thanks for the ride, you know. I go walk it, running up the stairs. My father's reading the newspaper. He looks over the, over the paper like, glad he's home. <laughs> just wonder what would happen to you. But as I reached the top of the stairs, and I have to understand, prior to this, a friend had challenged me to read about Messiah for myself. So I had been reading the New Testament. I'd been reading that stuff. I never read it before. And I was enthralled by what I had read. And I didn't have my Bible with me down in D.C. I just ran off. But the Word of God was penetrating into my heart. And when I got to the top of the stairs... Deep within the recesses of my being, I heard what I believe was God saying to me. It's either now or never. You either mean business with me or you don't. 
And the things that I experienced, I can't go into all of them now, were frightening things in which I got so close to death. And I saw people that had died in car accidents and so on on the way down and never been that close to that kind of thing before. I was like, I was just turned 17. It was just the end of 11th grade. And I walked up the stairs, and there inside of my being, God spoke to me and said, I didn't hear anything audibly. It was just, hey, you do me business with me now, and now's the time. Give me your life, or you got your life. And I remember my parents, you know, were Jewish family, that I, they couldn't see what I was doing. I was reading the Bible under my covers at night. I went into the bathroom. I knelt down with my hands on the hamper, you know. I didn't really know what to do or not do. And the thing that I became overwhelmed with was just how worthless my life was and how meaningless it was. In a sense, I was sort of just mourning the sin that was so permeating who I was. I saw that I was really out of control, that at any moment I could find myself hitchhiking in D.C., not even let my parents know where I was, knocking on doors of vans, hey, can you give me a ride home? I looked back and I said, oh my goodness, I'm really fortunate that nothing serious happened to me. And in our day and age, it's a whole lot worse, I imagine, than it was back then. But there was a mourning over my life because it was so ugly to me. And here was God saying, I'm here for you, to comfort you, to heal you, and to transform you. And my prayer basically was, Lord, if you could do something with this life, you've got it. That's how I became confronted with the poverty of my spirit and the mourning that it caused. The result was the Lord comforted me. Because after I prayed and I stood up, there was a sense inside that I finally arrived where I was meant to be all this time. I felt like God had really just loved me and accepted me and forgiven me and was going to do something with me, but I had no idea really what it would be. I told my parents right away. They weren't too happy. That's another story. But the point is this. Messiah said, blessed recipients of God's favor are those that come to a place where they recognize their need and are moved because of it to mourn because God will bring comfort. This word mourning means to, to grieve deeply. I dare say most people that I talked with oftentimes speak of receiving the Lord in order to be fulfilled or to find meaning, and those are good things. But we have to also come to that place where we say, Lord, if my life continues as it is in my own power and in my own hands, I'm going nowhere. I need your comforting grace and provision. And when we experience that, look what Messiah tells us. We become meek. <laughs> and then we're told we will inherit the earth. 
Of course, we oftentimes confuse what it means to be meek. We think that somehow meekness is an insipidness, being somewhat insignificant, weak inside. But the issue of meekness here is a quality of humility because who we are, we are by the grace of God. I remember, I may perhaps told this story, but I remember that I was speaking at years after that event. I was speaking at uh, churches, you know, and as I was doing ministry. And I was a guest speaker, and I was in the back, you know, shaking hands as people would leave. And there was an individual that gave a special song. And as the person came out, you know, somebody in front of me, I don't know if he was an elder or what, shaking hands. And the person said, gee, that was a wonderful song that you sang. And he did a great job, you know. She said, it wasn't me, it was God. And he said, no, I know, I know God blessed you with a nice voice, and it really sounded great. She said, no, it wasn't me, it was God. And uh, the person said, well, you know, it really was you. If it was God, it would have been a whole lot better, you know. <laughs> Meekness or humility is not somehow ignoring the blessings God has given us. It's really just bowing low before God so you can't, can stand tall before others. It's like what Peter says, you know, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will raise you up. Meekness is a cool kind of thing, really, because the people about whom meekness is spoken of are not people we would consider meek. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses is said to be the meekest man in all the earth. But I don't believe that. I mean, think about it. Here's a guy that killed an Egyptian because he was pretty upset about how he was treating his fellow Jews. You know, if that's what meekness is, well, that's pretty powerful stuff. And then for 40 years, living in the wilderness, taking care in the desert region and taking care of sheep, well, that's pretty significant. And then going to the greatest ruler of that day and saying, let my people go. And then spending 40 days up on Mount Sinai receiving the law and then leading two and a half million plus Jewish people. I mean, it's tough enough leading people, but leading two and a half million Jewish people. Oh, my goodness. We want to go back. We don't want to do this. We don't want to go over there. We don't want to go here. Where's the water? Where's the food? You know, it's like, oh, my goodness. Poor Moses. This is the meekest man in all the earth. And. When disturbed, it'd be pretty powerful. You remember when he comes down from the mountain, he sees all this revelry going on among the Jewish people. He takes the tablets that God had carved with his own, as it were, finger, and he just smashes them to the ground. Oh, my. That's the meekest man in all the earth. <laughs> you know, was, I could hear God say, you know, I worked very hard on that. Yeah. Or when people, you know, when God says, look, I just want you just, Moses, hear me here, just speak to the rock. And as the people are getting on his nerves, bang, you know, he's the meekest man in all the earth. Meekness is a sense of humility, a sense of recognizing that God is the one before whom one stands. 
His meekness is exhibited that when God himself shows up in a bush that's burning and is not being consumed, he's ready to take his shoes off because he's a humble man before the mighty God. Another one about whom the scripture speaks of being meek. And it's interesting. Just check this out for a moment. In Matthew chapter 11, you know, this is the only place where Messiah speaks of his own character. It's the only place, you know, I started to think about that, Does, where Messiah says, you know, I'm a nice man, I'm a good man, I'm a loving man, I'm a whatever it is. The only place he talks about his character, as I can see, I mean, except saying I'm the good shepherd or something of that sort, is in uh, Matthew chapter 11, where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the only place I know where he speaks about his character. And look what he points out, his humility and his gentleness. It's also interesting, too, because Paul makes reference to this. I think it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 or whatever. He speaks of humility and the receiving of things from God. So Yeshua tells us in Matthew chapter 5, Recipients of God's good favor are those, he says, who are humble and meek. And they, he says, will inherit the earth. Now think about this. Just It's the meek and humble who do inherit the earth. I mean, we always think it's the arrogant and the abrasive and the pushy ones, you know, because they always get to the front of the line. But nobody likes them. So they really don't inherit the earth. They may gain things, but they lose the most important thing, relationship with other people. You know, this is true in the animal kingdom. Do you ever think about this? The most ferocious, arrogant, powerful animals, the eagle, tigers, lions, are the most powerful, most forceful, strongest predators. But compare them with, say, lambs, sheep, domesticated dogs, you know. The animals that are, in, are, that are on the endangered species list are your eagles, your tigers, your lions. But lambs don't make that list. <laughs> you know? Pets don't make that list. They inherit the earth. <laughs> but it's the tigers, the lions that we've got to be careful because they're going to be wiped out off the earth. There's a certain lesson in truth here, I think, you know? The meek inherit the earth. They're the ones people like. They're the ones people listen to. They're the ones people respect. They're the ones people honor. They may accomplish much, but they don't call attention to their, themselves in the accomplishing of it. Now, Messiah, and I'll just close with this, and Messiah draws this particular blessed statement from the Psalms. So take a look at this with me very quickly. Psalm 37. For the most part, the Beatitudes are things that Messiah is creating, crafting. 
But that particular one, the meek shall inherit the earth, is taken right out of the psalm. And in Psalm 37, I turn to 34, 37, look at, for example, verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Now, the neat thing about this psalm is that this psalm is about the inheritance of the land. It's talking about the earth. It's talking about the land of Israel. He's talking about entrance into the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the land, the establishing of God's kingdom. Now look at this psalm with me, how often this is made reference to. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and enjoy safe pasture. If you look at verse 9, evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will in inherit the land. We just saw in verse 11, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace. Take a look at, I'm probably going to miss some here, but uh, take a look at verse 21. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land. Look again down in verse 27. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. I think there's one more toward the end here. Let me see if I can catch it real quick. Um, 29, is it? The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And there, there may be one other. But you get the point. This is all about inheriting the land, the kingdom, the fullness of what God has. How does one do that? By being humble. What does humility consist of? Take a look at this. First of all, in verse 3, it consists in trust. It consists in trusting, relying upon, as the Amplified Bible says, clinging to. It used to say not cling on, but clinging to the Lord, trusting in the Lord. Look at verse 4. It involves not only trusting in, but delighting oneself in the Lord. I think that's one of our most difficult challenges. Many of us endure our life in the Lord, but to what degree do we really delight in God? Just enjoy Him and wanting to be with Him. That's what this means. Not only are the meek, the humble ones who trust, ones who delight, look at verse 5, they're ones who are committed to the Lord. Verse 7, they're ones who stand still before the Lord and wait on Him, rely upon Him. They're ones who refrain from anger and turn from those things that characterize the wicked. One and verse 27, turn from evil and do good. And in verse 28, it tells us why. For this is what the Lord loves. Now you're saying, hey, listen, I don't, I really don't see the fullness of my poverty before God. I don't really see the fullness of my need. You may be saying, I don't really mourn over these things. I'm not happy about them. 
But I don't know if I've ever, or maybe rarely, I can't remember when I have actually been deeply grieved over my sin. Think about the person in your life that when they had passed, you were just deeply grieved. And it took a great deal of consoling to feel restored. That's what Messiah is saying here about our sin. I really can't remember a time I was so deeply grieved except when my sin had led to things that were very harmful to myself. But that's what Messiah is talking about. And you might say, humility, man, that is not my natural bent. (laughs) It's none of ours. But I don't know if I can really do this humble thing. And the point is, none of us can. That's why it's a blessed thing. That's why it's a thing that comes by the favor of God. That's why it's something that is experienced only by God enabling us to experience. You can't sort of like conjure it up. It's something that God has to turn the light on for us, for, (laughs) and has to enable us to experience and receive. And even once we've received it, there's always more humility to experience. There's always more mourning to engage in. There's always more recognition of our poverty that we need to learn. But it's the start of the process and the reliance upon God to bring us through these stages so that we get to the place where we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't hunger and thirst for righteousness until we've recognized our great need. And it's when we've recognized our great need that we're moved to mourn it at whatever level we can with God's help. And once we mourn it, we need to remember it because we're to be a meek people, a humble people, who are ones who recognize our poverty of spirit and we're not happy about it. And when we're humble, then we can begin to thirst for the righteousness that only God can provide for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We are a kingdom people, as it were. And we are a people, at least for those of us who know you, who have been brought through this process to some degree. Evermore bring us through it over and over again that we might rejoice in what you've provided for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us, enable us to know the depth of our need to be moved by that need to cry out to you for comfort and then to be transformed by your comforting grace to be a people who look upon one another with humility for it is only because of your grace that we stand. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.